Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast by the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. I'm here today with Natasha Iskander to talk about her book, The Skill Make Us Human, Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond, published by the Princeton University Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Natasha, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So at the New Books Network, we'd like to start with learning about our guests' backgrounds. So could you tell us about your background, your biography a little bit? Sure. So uh, perhaps the easiest way to do this is to start from the present and work backward. I'm a professor at New York University's Wagner School of Public Service, and my work focuses on focuses on migration, and in particular, the generative possibilities of migration, uh, the way that migration can support the generation of new knowledges, uh, new ways of looking at the world, and and most importantly, new solidarities. Um, This project, the project that I will talk about today that is the subject of my book, uh, is a project that focuses on Qatar, and looks at migration flows from around the world to Qatar for the construction of the World Cup. Um, But my work has has touched down in a number of different places. I've looked at migration between Mexico and the US, between Morocco and Europe, and I've looked at um, the generative patterns of knowledge development in the various places that migrants engage with cities in the U.S., cities in Europe, cities in Mexico, cities in Morocco, um, now Qatar, and the places that migrants come to Qatar from. For me, this question with migration being a source of generative potential has a lot of personal resonance. I am also a a child of migrants. Um, My father is Egyptian, and my mother was Czech and she defected in 1963 from what was then Czechoslovakia. And these different perspectives, cultural perspectives, life perspectives brought together in my family have meant that I have really uh, always have appreciated the way that different perspectives, different approaches to uh, uh, being, belonging, home, Uh, those have always appeared to me as generative and positive and sources for expansion. Um, And so in my work, I explore how those processes of expansion and creativity and solidarity emerge through uh, processes that immigrants and migrants engage with uh, at work, in their communities, and in their relationships to their government. 
Yeah, so I really, really enjoyed reading The Skill Make Us Human. And in this book, you provide such a rich picture through, um, through grounded research about the complexity behind Qatar's booming construction industry and the daily lives uh, taking place behind this industry. So how did you end up um, writing about this topic? How did you end up being more and more interested in this topic? One of the things that is interesting in thinking about migration and reading the migration literature is that while there is a lot of research on migration, there's a lot of um, empirical work documenting the generative potential of migration. In fact, the positive impact of migration on economies and societies, most of that work focuses on the global north uh, and migration flows to the global north. Um, and one of the, um, the effects of this, this emphasis is that South-South migration, migration from uh, countries of origin in the global South to countries of destination in the global South tends to be overlooked. And in particular, there is comparatively very little research on migration and work in the Gulf. Um, Migration to the Gulf is one of the most, so by Gulf here, I'm talking about the, Ara the Arabian and Persian Gulf. Migration to the Gulf is one of the most significant migration flows anywhere in the world. Um, the population of the region, depending on estimates, is between 50 and 70% migrant. And remittances from the Gulf represent one quarter of all global remittances, so it's a huge and very important flow. And yet there was very little research to, um, to understand the empirics of this flow, the, the empirics of these migration patterns. And the research that does exist um, tends to focus on uh, countries of origin. I wanted to focus instead on work and migration in the Gulf. Um, so I started considering the Arabian Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, as a, an area for exploration. And around that time, uh, Qatar was awarded the 2022 World Cup. In 2010, it was awarded the 2022 World Cup for soccer, which will be held in November, just this November coming up. Um, and... Um, Immediately, Qatar began funneling hundreds of billions of dollars to invent, reinvent itself as a destination for sports and culture. It invested in the construction of the stadia that we have all seen photos of, but also uh, 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 tourist infrastructure, uh, transportation infrastructure for the games, uh, museums, cultural destinations. And to do so, it recruited hundreds of thousands of men, mainly from South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, to build these structures. Um, and as they were doing so, um, given that they had won the hosting rights for this global event, uh, the, the international press and human rights organization turned a spotlight onto the working conditions experienced by the migrants on construction sites in Qatar. And I was very interested in understanding more about how those working conditions were produced 
and um, what they could tell us about work and migration. Yeah, so um, the book is divided very beautifully. I really liked it. And um, you have interesting chapter titles that show how different layers of life are shaped by skill. You have chapters on the regulation of skill, production of cities. But before talking about these um, chapters and the formatting of the chapters, I would like uh, for you to um, talk a little bit about skill as you have found it through your in-depth research. Because as we understand from the book, skill is the focus of this entire book. And you argue that skill is not just about its assessment, evaluation, but rather skill is about the political definition of personhood. And within the construction sites by the managers, um, skill is not really understood as an ability, as an expertise, but um, it is a it is a political category. So what you do here, I think, is very, very important. You reconceptualize what skill is and you move beyond the assumption that skill, expertise is impartial, neutral, and you work through this argument um, with your chapters. And while you argue this, you move beyond merely focusing on control, surveillance, or resistance, and instead you center your analysis around the skill itself, around how skill is constructed, how it is made, how um, this is a political process. So could you open skill up a little bit for us? What is skill here? Um, and what does labeling someone as skilled or unskilled do? So perhaps it is uh, would be useful for me to talk about how skill opened up for me, which is such a beautiful and elegant phrasing. So thank you for that. Um, when I started to look at uh, the human rights and international press reports, I was struck by a couple of things. The first is that the catalog of labor abuses that these organizations documented was devastating. The reports pointed to things like wage theft, often for several months at a time, forced labor and forced overtime, uh, recruitment under forms of debt bondage where workers paid several thousands of dollars to secure a job in Qatar, passport confiscation, even physical intimidation. Um, they documented the effect of these labor violations on workers' very bodies. They often featured graphic description of injuries um, and accounts of death. They also looked at conditions in labor camps uh, where workers were housed, and they described the conditions as being abysmal, crowded, with a dozen men stacked in bunks in each room, unsanitary, sometimes with raw sewage flowing into the courtyards. And, you know, the composite picture that these human rights organizations and the international press were drawing was that the conditions in Qatar uh, had many similarities to slavery. And in fact, um, much of the international press ran headlines about World Cup slaves. Um, and in, in analyzing the source of these labor violations, this coverage pointed to the kafela system. Uh, kafela means sponsorship system. Uh, kafela system is literally translated as sponsorship system. And it's a legal structure by which migrant workers in Qatar are legally bound to their employer, um, or at least were at the time that the World Cup was awarded. Um, and it, this... 
visa structure made it illegal for workers to withhold labor for any reason. In other words, they couldn't quit their jobs for any reason or leave the country without their employer's permission. They also were not permitted to change employers or even to return to Qatar after they had left without their prior employer's permission. Um, you know, to its credit, here I want to open a parenthesis and just say that the government of Qatar has made some amendments uh, since about 2017. The government has been working with the International Labor Organization to reform its labor laws um, and has made several important changes. Uh, so the system is gentler now than it was when I began this research and when the World Cup was awarded. But what was really interesting to me is that in Qatar, 95% of the labor force is foreign and all migrants are covered by the same legal system, right? So 95% of the labor force being foreign means that Qatar, in Qatar, everyone is a migrant. Everyone from uh, the person who uh, collects the trash on the street to the CEO in you know the the most uh, in well endowed company, um, professors, doctors, lawyers, nurses, chefs, waiters, everybody was on the kafala system. Uh, and what was interesting was that even though construction workers experienced these labor violations, the doctors, managers, and professors who were also under the kafala system didn't experience these same labor violations. So something, something else had to be going on. So I really wanted to dig in and see what was going on. And to dig in, what I did was I spent several years on the project. I, I conducted ethnographic field work on a number of construction sites in Qatar, but also in training centers and in labor camps. I interviewed workers, but I also spent hundreds of hours shadowing them on site um, I observed them as they climbed scaffolds, as they poured concrete, as they created uh, steel cages that would become these massive concrete columns, and so on. I also interviewed managers and supervisors, architects and engineers, and even the government officials that commissioned the projects. And I asked all of them what ground them down, what broke their hearts, but also what inspired them and gave them purpose. I wanted to really develop a multidimensional and multi-layered understanding of the life stories involved in this migration process, but also the work processes that were involved. Um, it's worth noting that in Qatar, fully 100% of the construction industry is foreign. 100% of the construction industry from the manager to the architect to the engineer to the scaffolder to the laborer, everyone is a migrant. Uh, so the, the industry is fully international. And so um, as I started to look at these processes, what I found was that skill had a very central place. Um, you know, the remarkable stadia that are now circulating uh, the web uh, really can offer us a glimpse into how daring and ambitious the designs of Qatari buildings are. They really are quite remarkable. But I think something that is perhaps less visible 
uh, to someone who hasn't been involved in the construction process is how difficult these structures are to build. And here I'm talking about the stadia, but I'm also talking about luxury developments, artificial islands, museums, cultural centers, transportation infrastructure, and so on. Um, they require, these structures require highly sophisticated and highly advanced, really cutting edge construction techniques. Um, they are at the forefront of construction processes globally. Um, but the workers who built these structures arrived in Qatar with minimal construction experience, if any. They arrived from their homes in Nepal, in Kenya, in Egypt, in Bangladesh, to construction sites where they were building structures that were unlike any they had ever seen. Um, so what this ended up meaning was that construction sites in Qatar were organized as vast training systems uh, in order to provide workers with the skill they needed to build these amazing structures. All the building practices on site, every single task doubled as a job training process. Um, and companies literally lived and died by how well they were able to train their workforces. And they were highly deliberate about this. Um, they really viewed their training processes as almost proprietary. And they were very meticulous about these processes so that they measured the progress of workers in developing skill often several times a day. They knew exactly how skilled their workforce was um, with a high level of granular detail. And the skill was absolutely essential. Worker skill was absolutely essential to getting these buildings built. You needed to have um, people with people who had very quickly, workers who had very quickly developed uh, highly sophisticated, highly advanced, in some ways unprecedented construction skill uh, on these sites. But, you know, I asked managers not just about how they, excuse me, how they built this skill base, but, but also uh, how they viewed the skill that their workers had. And I was so struck because these managers referred to their workers as unskilled, unproductive, or sometimes just as bodies. And given that they knew exactly how skilled their workers were, and given that their whole enterprise relied on the depth of that skill, it became clear to me that they meant something other than skill. They were referring to, as you note in your question to me, a political category that justified the exploitation and dehumanization of their workers. Unskilled was a category used on site, but one that had a political significance that had very little to do with the actual skill of workers on site. Um, and this was a remarkable uh, insight for me. It really forced me to start thinking about how skill became a dehumanizing category, or rather how the category of unskilled became a dehumanizing category, and why it was so important for managers and supervisors to deny the skill of their workers even as they relied on that very skill for their, for their system of production. 
And in reflecting on this, I kind of had to excavate the logic of this political category. And what I found was that it was really crucial to look at learning. Because labeling someone as unskilled is essentially a denial of learning, a denial that learning has taken place. And this is important because learning is fundamentally an act of freedom. So, you know, you can compel someone to do something, you can force them to act in a certain way, but you can't force someone to learn. As anyone who's ever learned anything knows, learning is a deeply intimate process. It requires imagination, it requires volition, it requires desire, aspiration, um, and because teaching and learning, because learning requires teaching, right? These are two processes that go hand in hand. It also requires the relationships of trust that learning and teaching depend on, uh, the trust between the teacher and the student, the social connection, the, the empathy. And so when managers were denying learning, when they were denying that their employees had acquired skill and had learnt to acquire skill, they were essentially denying that their quote-unquote unskilled, and here I'm referring to a political category, their unskilled workers had the capacity to access the human, to access the registers of human experience that learning requires the agency, the desire, the creativity, the imagination. In other words, they were denying that their, quote-unquote, unskilled workers had the capacity for freedom because learning is an act of freedom. And then, you know, how can one be deprived of the freedom that you didn't have to begin with? The jump to justifying labor exploitation at that point is very, very small. And it became clear to me that it was this political use of skill and not the kafela system that produced the kinds of labor violations that were so carefully documented by human rights organizations and the international press. It was the labeling of skilled workers, and some of the workers were also unskilled, but it was the label of unskilled with its political valence, with its significance as a degraded form of political personhood that made it possible for uh, managers, supervisors, etc., to exploit their workers. Yeah, that's that's so compelling. So now let's talk more about your chapters and the division of them. Like I mentioned, you have chapters on the regulation of the skill, the production of cities, uh, the embodiment of skill, skillful practice as resistance, and um, the way that definitions of skill um, cause injuries and shape bodies, and on on also how the politics of skill shape responses to climate change. And of course, we will talk more about this, but you have a very interesting postscript that I think could be very useful for grad students. Um, so how did you decide to divide your book this way? What was your focus while formatting the book in such a way? Thank you for that very thoughtful and perceptive question. Um, you know, when I, when I started to explore 
the category of unskilled as a political category, as about political personhood, it became clear to me that the significance of that category extended far beyond the work site. And uh, that I needed to look at how this political construct uh, played out uh, throughout the different layers of social and economic life that migrants were experiencing in Qatar. And um, I found that, as you noted, it affected everything from this category was present. The use of the category of unskilled was present in everything from the construction of the legal framework all the way through to the experience of uh, people's bodies, their self-experience, their self-embodiment of their bodies, and ultimately even uh, the relationship of people to their earth, to to the earth and to climate change. Um, When I started to think about how to structure these chapters, I uh, thought that I wanted to follow... Um, the the traces of this category from its most abstract all the way down to its most material. Um, So the law being in some ways the most literal, the most institutional, the most political and most abstract uh, expression and encoding of the politics of the category of unskilled. And then I, I followed it down through its increasingly material manifestations. So the first chapter starts with an attention to the regulatory structure and in particular how the law in Qatar was created, how the kafela system was produced uh, through over a century and a half of global trade and exchange and how in those uh, sent in, in those currents of global trade and exchange and a series of commodity booms that went from pearls to oil to now the construction of Qatar as a center for global culture and sports, how throughout those different commodity booms, uh, the notion of skill was woven into the regulatory structures that were used. Um, this is this this chapter looks in particular at how the category of skill has um, its origins, or the this political use of the category of skill has its origins in different forms of labor bondage, uh, indentured servitude under the British, and then uh, ultimately uh, forms of bonded labor and slavery used to harvest pearls in the mid-19th century and carried forward through uh, the extraction of oil in the 1940s and 50s um, and into the present uh, with a different set of um, notions of welfare and freedom uh, attached to workers who are viewed as skilled versus workers who are viewed as unskilled, such that Workers who are defined as skilled in Qatar, but also by the many global and international firms that operate in Qatar, are afforded a kind of freedom that includes these these aspects of the human experience, human register that I mentioned before, imagination, creativity, aspiration, volition, uh, connection, 
whereas uh, the rights afforded to workers categorized as, as unskilled have been degraded so that they are limited to their bodily welfare. Uh, and the, the debate is about whether conditions are humane rather than whether workers have access to the full gamut of freedom and the full gamut of the human registers that make it up. Then the book progresses to look at how this notion of skill shapes the design and construction of the city. Uh, in particular, Doha. Uh, Qatar is on, on some level uh, a city-state. Uh, it has a, uh, an urban concentration in and around its capital, Doha. And the design and building of the city are both organized uh, around the notion of skill. Um, Qatar has been invented and reinvented through the adoption of a kind of high modernist uh, design and construction approach where the, uh, the, the, the impetus for design, the vision of the future is all decided at the top. Um, and it's a city designed for people rather than f- to, to create people rather than a city that responds to existing uh, needs of residents. Um, and it's a city that is designed for the global elite. And here in particular, uh, it is designed for the global, quote unquote, skilled elite. So here, the elite are tagged as skilled workers, knowledge workers. And Qatar, in fact, segregates the city by skill so that um, workers classified as unskilled are confined to um, labor camps in a zone of the city called the industrial area, which is actually zoned uh, not for residents, but for industrial uses. So workers are housed right next door to cement plants and aluminum smelting factories and many other polluting industries. And their, their living conditions are, are quite difficult in the industrial area. Um, and they do not have access to the city that they are building. They are banned from, by law from living in the city and in practice are banned even from accessing the city and its public spaces in any way. Um, the next chapter moves on to, the next chapter, which is called skill, moves on to look at how skill is actually produced on site, the way that skill is embodied and tacit and the kinds of interpersonal relationships that the construction of skill depends on. Uh, One of the things that was really remarkable to me is that workers developed um, kinship relationships around skill so that the the workers who were more skilled were called uncles or big brothers. And the newer workers or the workers who were less skilled uh, were referred to as little brother or son so that there was a kind of filial or kinship uh, uh, ethos around the teaching and learning practices on site. Um, And yet, even though these practices were rich and uh, important and nuanced and ran through every single um, production process, and even though it was workers who authored them, and workers' initiative in teaching and learning that allowed companies 
to function at the level that they did, um, management in these companies routinely denied that workers um, were learning. Uh, And this shaped their disciplinary structures on site. It shaped how they controlled workers and, in fact, how they controlled workers' physical movements on site uh, as a way to deny this very rich and worker-driven process of learning. Um, The next chapter is called Protest. Uh, And in that chapter, I look at skill as a strategy of resistance. Um, In Qatar, labor protests were and still are illegal. Uh, They can result in imprisonment and deportation. And yet, wildcat strikes, and so wildcat strikes are spontaneous strikes, uh, were very, very common in, in Qatar. Actually, every single site I was on saw a strike at one point or another. And it was interesting to me because employers tolerated these strikes so long as they hewed to a very specific script. They had to be short, a day or two. Workers had to stay in their labor camps. Uh, No protests or challenge were tolerated on site. As one supervisor said, it's like a spark that can set the whole place on fire. So they tamped it down immediately. And the protests had to be limited to one nationality. And if the protests stayed within these parameters that management defined, uh, companies uh, gave them what they would call a day to blow off steam and get their heads back on right. But any protest that deviated from these rules would result in immediate deportation. And especially threatening to managers were protests that were organized across nationality because it meant that workers were no longer just blowing off steam as, you know, a group of Bangladeshis or Egyptians, but rather they were organizing as workers with a class consciousness. And so these kinds of protests were absolutely disappeared through deportation, sometimes within hours. But workers found a way to resist. And the most powerful strategies drew on skill and the relationships of solidarity developed through teaching and learning. Workers drew on these connections and their expertise to resist unsafe practices. Um, They drew on their fictive kinship relationships um, and on their identity as uh, tradesmen, as scaffolders, as welders, as a source of um, unity um, and as a source of solidarity. Um, And uh, just to give you one quick example, on one side I was on, the scaffolders were asked to work double shifts um, and because there wasn't time to go back to the labor camp and sleep, they were told they could just nap uh, between work days in a space on site. And the scaffolders refused. They said it was dangerous to work such long shifts and dangerous to work at night when floodlights caused confusing shadows to appear. And so here they bound together as scaffolders across nationality and referred to their expertise to push back. And ultimately the management of the company that hired them had to back down. The next chapter is called Body. And it looks at the role of skill 
and skill politics in abetting heat injury. Um, when I interviewed workers, I often asked them, what was the most uh, difficult thing about working in Qatar? And rather than responding with um, answers that focused on working conditions or wage theft or kind of the disciplinary structures or the labor camps, all of them, all of them responded by saying that heat was the most difficult thing. They described heat as a torment that they uh, couldn't have imagined before coming. They described the heat as uh, pressing down on them. They described as the, the, the heat as feeling, making them feel like they were drowning in the air, like they were breathing fire. Um, they described it as being completely new to them and completely oppressive to them. And one of the reasons that um, heat was so dangerous, in addition to the fact that the temperatures in which they worked were often life-threatening, even, even to bodies at rest. Um, so, you know, and workers were doing physical work in this intense heat. Um, you know, the reason that heat is dangerous is not just through its direct assault on the body, but because heat first attacks the neurocognitive system. So it, in some ways, separates workers from their expertise. Um, the early symptoms of heat stress are confusion, loss of balance, lots of loss of orientation, uh, loss of uh, emotional regulation, uh, and um, loss of access to the full spectrum of cognition. And this was very dangerous because it meant that workers could not rely on their expertise and on their sense of themselves in their bodies and on the construction site to keep them sa safe. Uh, with this kind of high level of construction, one of the most important things for worker safety is their expertise. Uh, and workers could not access it anymore. And what this meant was that uh, employers could blame workers for their own injuries. In other words, uh, a worker who made a mistake or who lost his balance or who couldn't follow safety protocol to the letter because of heat injury could then be blamed for whatever injury resulted to himself or to anybody else uh, because uh, he was culpable for not having exercised his expertise which he no longer had access to because of the heat. And in a way, it also allowed managers to draw on heat injury as a way to justify their description of workers as unskilled and to justify the exploitation that that allowed. The final chapter is called Earth. And it looks at uh, how companies in Qatar are approaching uh, the pressures of climate change. Um, one of the things that I found really remarkable in my interviews uh, with companies around Qatar was the ways in which they were looking at climate damage as a business resource, as a resource in particular for uh, the recruitment of workers. Um, Qatari companies, you know, in some ways it's a kind of pop-up construction industry once they got their project approved, they had to quickly assemble 
a, a very elaborate contracting chain to produce a stadium, a museum, a, a luxury development. And as part of that, uh, the companies involved in the project had to recruit thousands of workers. So these project sites had something like, uh, you know, 5,000, 10,000, even 80,000 workers. And those workers had to be recruited very, very quickly uh, within uh, within months and certainly even sometimes within weeks. Um, and so uh, companies had to source large numbers of workers very quickly. They also wanted to source workers at low wages. But the most important thing that they were looking for in sourcing workers was to find workers who had the ability to learn. They wanted workers who uh, had what they called absorptive capacity. So even though employers denied learning, they very heavily relied on workers' ability to learn in order for their production systems to work, to build these structures. So they were absolutely keen on finding workers who could learn. And... uh, what they were doing to recruit workers who can learn, who could learn, was to seek places out that had been damaged by climate change. So here, places wiped out by typhoons, places shriveled by drought, or flooded by sea level rise. Because in these places, climate change pressures turned relatively well-off people into the newly poor and made them available to migrate. And the fact that they were newly poor, as uh, the fact that they were newly poor and not, um, you know, endemically poor, was critical. It made it made workers from these regions good recruits because those workers had benefited from long-term investments in education, in nutrition, and health, uh, things that were critical for absorptive capacity, for the ability to learn. But now, in the wake of climate damage, they were willing to accept lower wages than they would have before. Um, They were compelled to migrate in some sense because their livelihoods had been impacted by slow-moving and fast-moving climate disasters. Um, And so these uh, recruiters shifted from a strategy of recruiting people to a strategy of recruiting climate-damaged places where they could find workers who were newly poor, who had in better days invested in their uh, human development, um, because these were the migrants who had the absorptive capacity to become highly skilled, but who could be classified pretty much permanently as unskilled. Uh, on On a more kind of macro level, what this suggests is that companies in Qatar were using climate damage as a business resource. And in some ways, it's, um, it's, it's uh, a really poignant story because there's a closed loop of climate damage here. Um, the buildings in Qatar were fueled by hydrocarbon revenues, right? They, they were built with the revenues from oil and gas sales that Qatar had extracted, right? So oil and gas profits that that Qatar had uh, earned on the global market were being invested into these fantastic buildings. And uh, companies building these buildings were going to the places that those hydrocarbons had damaged to recruit 
workers who could learn, but who could be permanently classed as unskilled. Yeah, um, I thought that that chapter was such an unusual intervention um, where you show how um, the politics of skill is related to, is in direct relation to um, these companies and how these construction companies are actually seeking after um, people who are under the impacts of um, ecological environment and global warming, uh, some disastrous realities. So was that something that was unusual for them too, or was that just um, for the workers and also for the companies? Was that something unusual to seek after these kinds of people, these kinds of workers, or was that just, um, you know, just an ordinary thing happening? It's so interesting that you would ask that question, Folia. You know, one of the one of the striking things in talking about this book is that that finding is one that um, many people have found very compelling and surprising. Um, but that is so different than recruiters in Qatar who view this strategy as absolutely run of the mill. Um, you know, for them turning to areas damaged by climate change as a source of workers who are newly poor is like an obvious strategy. It is something that uh, is, it, I mean, the, the, the kind of resource that these places represent for worker recruitment um, is so clear to these companies uh, that not doing so would be like, walking away from uh, a business asset. Uh, this was a practice that was really quite common throughout, uh, throughout the Qatari construction industry. And one of the remarkable things was that it, it has started, I think, to reshape construction, I mean, sorry, reshape recruitment practices in countries of origin so that you have Uh, recruiting agents now focusing on recruiting places as opposed to recruiting persons, uh, really reorganizing their whole business model uh, to do so. And I think, you know, the, the regulatory structures uh, that focus on transnational recruitment or the recruitment of migrant labor are a little bit behind, right? Like, I don't think that Um, the regulatory structures have caught up to um, the significance of climate damage to recruitment strategies of companies in Qatar. But on a, on a broader level, I think it, it shows to us how Qatar is actually a window onto perhaps a, a global future of work and employment relations. Um, You know, Qatar is in some ways a limiting case. It, uh, there are few economies in the world where 95% of the workers are migrant. In fact, no other economy in the world. Um, Qatar is lavishly wealthy. Um, the levels of inequity are dramatic um, uh, and very uh, poignant. Um, but it's also the fastest warming place on the planet. It is the fastest, one of the fastest warming places on the planet by an accident of geography. Uh, but the temperatures there are 
already in the summer months, often life-threatening to just be outside. And it, the, an examination of recruitment and work practices in Qatar forces us to think about how climate change is likely to reshape labor relations at the work site and beyond. So at the work site through the extreme temperatures and what it means to work under those conditions and how we protect workers through with regulatory structures and whether or not we need to start thinking about um, just banning work when it is uh, when the temperatures are extreme and also how we might reorganize work so that construction, for example, could occur mostly indoors through prefabricated components where workers are protected from the most extreme climate um, expressions, the most extreme temperatures. But beyond that, it forces us to really rethink how the relationships of power, income, uh, access, visa structures, migration, recruitment are all likely to be inflected by climate change pressures. Um, we tend to think, I think, of climate change as external to the economy. And the question ends up being mostly about how we reorganize the economy to uh, forestall climate change, to reduce carbon emissions. But I think we actually need to ask a deeper question about how climate change is actually already transforming economic relations and the social relations that are uh, intertwined with those economic transactions. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I think it will be very interesting for a lot of our audience, very compelling. So um, let's talk about your postscripts a little bit. This part I thought is especially useful for um, both undergraduate and uh, graduate students who are learning about the research processes, um, some ethical questions, and um, how to deal with some structural limits, where to stop. So can you tell us a bit about your choice to add a postscript about your research experience? One of the things that I think is... Um, becoming more and more true in the research of human mobility and migration, uh, and in particular worker migration, uh, is that those uh, fields are becoming more and more securitized. Uh, Whether you're talking about Qatar, which is, um, you know, an autocratic regime with a high level of control over political speech and voice uh, and expression, uh, or you're talking about the U.S.-Mexico border, these, and, 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 and the carceral strategies used there, these are fields that are securitized and where, as a researcher, you don't have the full um, vista. Uh, there are areas that are blocked from view And so I think it's important for us as researchers to make uh, the ways in which those security structures shape our research visible, to make them explicit, to discuss how they shape our research and what we're able to see. And I, I think this is important for three reasons. The first reason is simply because it shapes what we're able to see. 
there are areas that um, become blocked from view, that are obscured, that are uh, made invisible, made inaccessible, and are made deniable by government actions. Um, the second important piece here is that that uh, kind of denial or securitization to obscure, that uh, also is a kind of data. That also tells us something about state structures, straight state practices, uh, practices of control, how those work. And it's important to pay attention to exactly how they work in order to understand them better. Um, and the third point here is I think that um, the ability to identify what is not visible and to identify how, what it elucidates, the, the state practices that it elucidates, is also a skill. And it's a skill that we don't talk about enough. Uh, so this is my third point. I, I think um, this is really the impetus for me in writing the postscript. And uh, my hope was to create the space to have a conversation about um, how to develop the sensitivity to what is obscured and what the denial means, what the security strategies mean, um, and um, what, that, what that development of that sensitivity entails, what it entails uh, from kind of a conceptual and analytic uh, perspective, uh, what kind of a, what kind of uh, dissection of state practices one needs to undertake, but even more importantly, um, the kind of skill that it requires on a personal level for uh, self care, self protection, for the navigation of uh, research fields, and for the protection of one's. Uh, of one's data, the confidentiality of subjects who participate in the study, also the safety of one's research team, and ultimately the safety of the researcher themselves. Uh, so all of these things really, I think, need to be addressed more fully as the fields that so many of us are engaged with have become more securitized. Uh, these are questions that I found were very thinly addressed when I tried to reflect on my experience in Qatar, which I detail in the postscript, I found that there were very few resources for me to access, very little writing on this. And I, I wanted to open the conversation um, and also just illuminate what I wasn't able to see and why. Yeah, it's it's so important to have these conversations. And I say this as a PhD student who is also doing research on migration in Turkey, um, but still like there are a lot of difficulties there too. Well, um, Natasha, we have taken a lot of your time. I would love to continue, but maybe we should now talk about your next project. Thank you so much for that question. So the next project really builds off of what I learned through this project. Um, this project was much bigger and much more difficult than I, than I had anticipated, but I also learned so much more than I thought I would. Um, it was such a rich project for me on a personal level, and it, it really uh, opened up new avenues of inquiry 
And the next project really tries to explore one of those avenues of inquiry, uh, looking specifically at how climate change is affecting the future of work and how it is affecting the future of work um, within work, not just in terms of the numbers of jobs, whether or not climate change is you know, uh, removing jobs from the economy, adding jobs, uh, questions of just transitions. Do we build green jobs? Do we create green jobs for clean energy, et cetera? Rather, I, I want to look at what happens within existing jobs. What happens to the power relations within work? Uh, how are those affected by climate change? And here I'm looking at... Uh, you know, the workplace itself, but also the places interpolated by those work relationships. So the next project looks at the construction of climate protective infrastructure. And I'm looking at the processes uh, at the work site, but also the city design processes and more broadly, the migration processes through which uh, the labor force for this construction is created. Yeah, that's so exciting. Um, that sounds amazing. We will certainly be looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Natasha, for your time, for joining us, for this amazing book, for answering my questions. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for creating this space to reflect on this book. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the book and the pleasure is certainly mine. I'm your host, Fulia Punar. This discussion of Natasha Iskander's book, The Skill Make Us Human, Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond, published by the Princeton University Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.